Now please remain standing and turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 5. We'll be reading the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 5, only 12 verses. 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12. 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. In the 2009 superhero movie, The Watchmen, which was just before the current Marvel movie craze, the best character of the movie isn't a real superhero at all. His name is Rorschach. He's a small man, paranoid, brutally violent, and a world-class detective, but completely without superpowers, a Machiavellian Batman, so to speak, who has no problem killing and doing whatever it takes. In this movie, he's eventually captured by his enemies and placed in a prison filled with the people he himself arrested for their crimes. But when the bars shut behind him, he utters the ominous words, I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. In our text this morning, we find those words to apply. The Ark of Yahweh has been captured by the wicked, idolatrous Philistines according to God's plan to judge Israel through the Philistines. The Philistines got the wrong idea about this victory against Israel and thought that God is therefore no match for their idol, Dagon. But in 1 Samuel 5, it's revealed to the Philistines what they knew all along about Dagon and about Yahweh. 
the true God and his power. They got far more than what they bargained for, God says to the Philistines in this episode. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. But before entering into the Philistine predicament, let's review. It's been a little bit before we've, or since we've been in 1 Samuel. Let's review how we got here. Israel is still in the time of the judges, actually, in this time, in the first part of 1 Samuel. And they're in utter disarray as a rule. They did not honor God according to his word, and they have iniquity in the highest places. Despite all this, the lowly Hannah is given a son, Samuel, whom she asked from the Lord. And God promises to bring his anointed to the throne and destroy the wicked of the wickedness, the wick, rather, the wickedness of the wicked, saying, Not by might nor by power shall a man prevail. This is in 1 Samuel 2. If Israel had might, or if it had a power of its own at one time, now in our passage it has absolutely nothing. No might or power of its own. What's worse, the ark of God has been captured by their sworn enemies, the Philistines, so that the dying breath of even one of the evil high priest's wives is, where is the glory? Lamenting what is one of the lowest and most powerless places Old Testament Israel is ever placed in as a nation. Interestingly, though, amid all this chaos in Israel after the defeat of the Israelite army to the tune of 40,000 people dead, we immediately depart from the land of Israel in the narrative and focus rather on the goings-on in Philistia with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This passage is quite unique in that it shows us God in his direct actions without any mediation from Israel in the Old Testament against sin. Just quite unique. One of those things that we can glean from this unique passage is, might be stated in a question. How does God himself react to other religions? That is, how does God react to a set number of beliefs which God, truth himself, does not agree with? They're therefore false. Let's find out as we enter into our passage, looking first at God's judgment of false religions and false gods, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 5. It might seem that God actually starts with mercy against these, these religions, this religion of Dagon in verse 1, because he doesn't immediately kill the Philistines who took the ark, as he does at other times, as we'll find even in Second Samuel. Verse 1, the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, which is one of the major cities of Philistia. But in the end, God was seeking to bring an even greater and more public humiliation to the Philistines by passing over an immediate judgment. So he kept his judgment for this injustice toward his glory of taking and capturing the ark and until later, as he often does. Interestingly, the Philistines set up the ark of God next to Dagon, their idol, next to, in his own house. This may be like an ancient trophy room a royal trophy room for Dagon, as the ancient Philistines knew that they were victorious and they attributed that victory to Dagon. However, verse 2 says they very purposefully placed the ark beside Dagon. There's either a kind of equality between these gods or respect toward Yahweh, as even we saw in 1 Samuel 4 in their minds, or they've set them up, rather set Yahweh up before Dagon, 
as a cosmic battle between two gods. After all, the Philistines, in the Philistine mind, Dagon just recently defeated the Israelite army when the ark was present. Perhaps now the ark itself, Yahweh himself in the Philistine mind, of course, would be defeated if placed before Dagon, creating much greater humiliation and defeat and despair in Israel, the nation. Either way, victory was on the Philistine mind. Their religion, their false god, was more powerful, was powerful, so they thought. Well, perhaps in anticipation of this divine battle, the people of Ashdod rise very early, the priests of Ashdod rise very early the next day and find, at least to them, a horrible sight. Verse 3, their their plan backfired. Dagon had fallen face downward in the dust before the ark of Yahweh. It's at this moment that God's comedy routine of lampooning the religion of the Philistines and Dagon himself begins. Dagon, the great idol, so to speak, of course, for them, great idol of the Philistines, can't seem to do anything himself anyway. So his followers drag him back up from the dirt and dust him off and return him to his place with the ark still beside him. You know, maybe, maybe it was just a coincidence. The priests of Dagon are saying, maybe the wind came in or, you know, there was some shift in the earth or who knows. Maybe he just wanted to look at something on the ground. They weren't ready to attribute these happenings to the glory of God and the glory of the, of the ark yet. Considering the priests got there so early each day, I imagine they wanted to control the narrative, whatever happened in this cosmic battle. That is, if Dagon lost, the priests could cover it up and keep their own power. So the priests must be saying to themselves, this face-first falling of Dagon can't mean that Dagon was in face-first submission to God, to Yahweh. That's to be something else, or else we'll make it seem so regardless. Well, verse 4 reveals Dagon as more like Humpty Dumpty than a great and fearful God, because he not only falls face-first a second time before the ark in submission, but had both his hands and his head cut off. And it says cut off here. They're not broken. Somehow they could see that they were cut off and there would be no coincidence. This was not only a confirmation of Dagon's face for submission to Yahweh, but now an utter defeat of Dagon. Apparently, as the rest of Dagon was left in his place, his hands and his head were flung away from him. This dismemberment, as verse 5 relates, the Philistines hilariously conclude to be partly from the power of the threshold, which becomes holy unto them. When you see this even in Zechariah, we find here other religions will stop at nothing to run from the necessary conclusions of the actions of God. Yes, Philistines, behold your God. With the alternative of defeat by Yahweh or defeated by a threshold, they apparently choose the threshold. These pagan people will not stop. They will stop at nothing to call these happenings coincidence, but God will show them differently. This is God's judgment against false religions and false gods. He is the living God, and there is no other. He will judge this religion and the priests and their practices, and he will humiliate them for their falsehoods. Religion, that is an objective set of beliefs, at least if I'm talking of it here, in some God or of some way of salvation, is not some quaint romantic thing, a cultural thing. 
For the Ark of God were in this story to be in the presence of Buddhism or Hinduism. He would not comment on how interesting they are or how beautiful. He would show it to be false, just as he has done here with Dagon worship. God judges anything which sets itself up as equal with God himself, or as if it could have any power of its own without dependence upon God. This is a preview of what God will do through David, who cuts off the head of Goliath, the Philistine, and a preview of what God will do through Christ, who cuts off the head of death and sin itself, the eternal victory over Satan and the hosts of darkness. God here and in, is here through Christ declaring that there are not many roads to the same God, so says Yahweh here in our passage, to all religions but his own. Your religion is false and worthy of judgment. And who does he say this to? He says it to the professors of this religion, of course, who he judges next in our passage, starting in verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people. This is the judgment against professors of false religion, starting in verse 6 and ending in verse 11. He afflicted them with tumors, and not just any tumor, I might add, but probably bubonic plague, what the medieval called the Black Death. This is likely because the tumors are here called tumors of the groin in the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. This is a a very characteristic symptom of bubonic plague because bubos, where we get the word bubonic, actually means tumor of the groin. And these tumors in our text are somehow involved with mice, as we'll see in chapter 6, when the Philistines offer golden tumors and mice to the ark. This is also very characteristic of the plague because it was transmitted often through mice, or at least the, the, the creatures that lived on mice. However, whatever the type of plague, the hand of the Lord was, verse 6, heavy against Ashdod, which the Ashdodites recognize in verse 6 and say, get this thing out of here, for his hand is harsh upon us and upon Dagon, our God. The grim comedy continues with these last words. This verse reveals the priests could not keep Dagon's defeat silent. They could not control the narrative. The glorious hand of God was upon Dagon and upon the religion of Dagon. And now God's hand is heavy upon them, the followers of Dagon, and they cannot stop it. Let it go away, they say. So they bring the several kings of the Philistines together for a council in verse 8 to request they send the ark away. So the the kings say, rather, let us send it away to Gath. This is a pretty interesting plan that's hard to see just in our English version. But the Hebrew word reveals their plan. The word translated as brought around is a good translation, but it's hard to translate this word. It means go around or go about in a circular motion, a circle, or make a circuit. Something of that sort would be a good translation. The stroke of genius of the kings is in this word. Instead of losing face and being defeated by Yahweh, the kings make it seem like they're sending the ark of God around to each major city in a victory tour, a victory parade, as if they had control over him. So the kings might say, oh, we're sending the ark away, not because it's nearly wiped out Ashdod at this point. It's because it's a sign of our power over the God of Israel. This will have the added effect of making sure it was not merely a coincidence that the plague broke out against Ashton when the Ark of God arrived. 
If the plague broke out in Gath, it wasn't a coincidence. Really quite ingenious on a human level. But, of course, this turns out to humiliate the Philistines even further. From the terror and affliction that we see in Ashdod in verse 6, Gath goes further and has a very great tumult in verse 9. Now striking everyone, great and small, with tumors, so that when the victory parade was to come out of Gath and go into Ekron, the people of Ekron catch on to the deception of these kings, and they panic and say in verse 10, they have brought to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. Now, instead of controlling the narrative, the people know the ark is causing this, and there's no coincidence. They actually assume the ill will of their kings instead of anything else so that the kings have actually done harm to their position instead of their political wrangling doing anything good. This, of course, is not good for the kings. So the kings of the Philistines return to council, and the people now don't ask the kings for anything. They actually command, in verse 8, the kings to do something. Or rather, verse 11, send the ark of the God of Israel and return it to its own place, and do not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly tumult upon the city, as the hand of God was very heavy upon them there. There was actual real unrest in the city in Philistia now because of the ark. Just the ark. After seven months, as we see in 1 Samuel 6.1, which is really quite a long time to have the plague of this kind, they had had enough, finally. But verse 12 is possibly the most interesting part of this passage. It says, And the men which had not died were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. These words are the desperate cry of those in utter helplessness. Dagon has not helped them, the leaders have not helped them, and their schemes have not helped them. And they cannot now deny the truth. They are utterly powerless to stop the ark of the Lord. They are helpless. Great and small now confess this, and great and small have been killed And a revolution may be near if something is not done. What do these people do? Interestingly, they do not cry out to Dagon. They have learned their lesson. But nor do they cry out to their kings. They cry to heaven. Verse 12. God revealed to them the the truth that God is in control. Not Dagon, not them. Whatever conniving, whatever controlling of the narrative that they did, they were not in control. And neither was their idol, Dagon. So they cried out. Now this is not faith, I must point out. This is a bare admission of their dependency upon a god somewhere that is more powerful and greater than their own idol. Notice they don't pray to Yahweh or the ark. They pray to heaven. So we cannot say that God ever approves of false religion, nor that judgment alone is the gospel as we see here. God directly acts against false religions in this story, destroying the doctrines of that false religion, and indeed judging those who confess those doctrines in verses 1 through 5 and then 6 through 11. Sincerity is not God's criteria for salvation, brothers and sisters. Unless those who profess false religions repent, they will go to eternal condemnation. This is the first part of the gospel that God is preaching to them here. So this is where we go. That is God's judgment. And there is a glorious and good reason for this judgment against false religion and the professors of it, which is the gospel of condemnation and our utter helplessness. This is in verse 12. 
This judgment against the Philistines may not be the full gospel. The Christ is not proclaimed. The Messiah is not proclaimed here. But this is the first step in the gospel, the gospel of condemnation. Try as we might to suppress the truth, we know that we have offended against a holy God, just as these Philistines have. And try as we might to make the pit of our condemnation, our miserable, shallow, rather misery, a shallow pit, and an easily overcome pit with our idols and their advice, God breaks their false hopes here. The, fair, the Philistines, in order to have true salvation, had to first know that their religion was worthless. Second, that the condemnation of Yahweh was upon them. Yahweh was upon them. And lastly, that they were utterly helpless as they were in their own situation. The hand of the Lord is heavy upon those who are not perfect, brothers and sisters. He has lately brought Israel to the brink of destruction, and now, over the last seven months, he has brought the Philistines to their knees in helplessness and death. They had no righteousness, so they were condemned and utterly helpless to revert their judgment. God is preaching the first part of the gospel, without which the gospel has no meaning, wrath. God's wrath against sin and idolatry. No other religion, especially not Dagon worship, teaches just how low humans have fallen. How worthy of death we are. And just how far they have to go in order to not be under the heavy hand of God's judgment. We are not spiritually sick, brothers and sisters, when we are born. We are not in need of a hospital. We are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins and worthy of eternal condemnation. Now that God has directly given that heavy hand, they are searching for that hand who brings affliction, that they might find mercy. But again, notice they will not deign to ask Yahweh, the God of Israel. Even in their own day, people will, our own day, in their own day, people will search for anything to assuage their affliction, but they will not bend the knee toward God Almighty because he proclaims just how helpless they are and they are in need of his work in their heart. Before we can truly repent, we must know just how far we have fallen in Adam. The Philistines were never able to do this, so they never repented. Not in the Old Testament. And they were never saved, even with such an opportunity as this. God in their midst, preaching the first part of the gospel. But Jew and Gentile are now in 1 Samuel in utterly hopeless situations, both of them. Dagon is gone for the Philistines, and government has failed them, and they're they're struck with a plague of tumors. The Ark of God, symbolizing his mercy and his presence, has left Israel, struck them with tens of thousands of dead soldiers, and their military and government structures are in tatters. This is Israel, who can help Jew or Gentile. It's not man, but God. And we see the only hope of salvation for these people, Jew and Gentile here, God himself and God alone. Yahweh's religion does not consist in talk and in vice, but in power, brothers and sisters. God goes captive to the enemy, just as Christ did. Just like with Christ Jesus and his captivity to Pilate upon the cross and completely reverses expectations. God put himself in the worst possible situation so that we can see only power himself 
could gain the victory in such a situation, in these positions, in the, the pit of Philistia, and gain even greater glory for himself in the process. Even in the place where our enemies, the enemies of God, brothers and sisters, feel entirely exultant, even in our own day, like they have finally vanquished God as their enemy and his people, look for the dawn. Brothers and sisters, look for the dawn of God's destruction of sin and our enemies. He always works in this way. Jesus Christ, captive of Gentile overlords, brought victory in this way. He was not only the captive of death, but as it were, judged for the sin of his people in death. His gospel did not consist in a word and advice as other religions, but power over death and condemnation. He, though captive, cut off the head of Satan's power, just as the ark does here to Dagon, as a type of Christ before him in his work. Yet he looked so weak, just like the ark for a time. Why does God do this? Look so weak. Sometimes, Why does he constantly work this way, culminating in Christ Jesus and his victory over death and sin by the sinful murder of himself through death? Why does he work in this way where it seems he is helpless, that he might be shown utterly victorious and powerful? Because it is in these positions, the ark in captivity next to Dagon and Christ taken captive upon the cross, These positions show us just how little he needs us in our work. Did anyone rescue the ark of God? Did anyone help Jesus off the cross? No, he was left utterly alone. And in apparent dishonor and humiliation, in both cases, that in both cases he might show that he alone is wise, he alone is powerful, and that he alone brings salvation without our help, brothers and sisters. Christ won salvation from sin and Satan in his victory. The wicked are judged. The Philistines are not yet destroyed here, not because God does not hate other religions, but because he tolerates their wickedness until the day of judgment that he might save some, like he did Ruth, as we have already seen, the Moabitess, from their midst, from the midst of the wicked, through Christ's work in their hearts, supernaturally creating repentance. He does not do this often in the Old Testament, as the Israel was his people to show what the the salvation of Christ was to be like and the judgment of Christ, as we will see a great deal of in 1 Samuel. This passage is not merely a condemnation of organized religion, but our subjective religion as well, I might say, brothers and sisters. That is, a critique of the way we practice our life in Christ. It is not only the pagans who are called idol worshipers. Overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, God criticizes Israel first and foremost for their idolatry. What I mean is this. How often do we set up idols beside the Lord? Or not even in the place of him, hoping that God will not notice. How often do we deny the providence of God as coincidence so that we will not be convicted and repent? How often do we trust in our own machinations in order to overcome the consequences of sin rather than repent in sackcloth and ashes before God? This, too, is another manipulation of God, as we've seen throughout all of 1 Samuel. 
All religions and all peoples are prone to manipulate God. And why? Because the only alternative is to live up to the standard of absolute perfection so that they bring that standard down somehow in their religion. Often we bring that standard down as well, somehow. But look at how God judges not just Philistia, but Israel for their sin. We cannot bring down the requirement of absolute perfection. What separates Christianity is that we do not bring this requirement down. And what also sets us apart is that we believe we are utterly condemned because of this standard And we know that Christ alone has fulfilled this standard, the requirement of utter perfection. Were it not for Christ, there is no salvation in this system. It is utterly closed. The requirement is utter blamelessness and righteousness. And so, and we are so depraved like the Philistines, that we are utterly unable to repent in ourselves. Although we know our need in this suffering world, were it not for Christ who sent Paul to the Gentiles, we would still be like Ashdod, you and I. But Christ did not forget even these sinful Philistines, as we see in the New Testament. He sends Philip to Ashdod in Acts 8.40, sends him directly, transports him there to save the people he once afflicted. The people he once preached the first part of the gospel of faith in Christ He gets the second part of the gospel. Well, as two Gentiles heed the cut-off head of Dagon. And the gospel against idolatry, Christ preached both to Old Testament Azotus and New Testament Azotus. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. For, as Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation. Who for? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Even the Philistine, even you, praise God for his mercy to us, his helpless people purchased by grace. Let us go to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we are indeed helpless people before you. Lord, we are utterly condemned. If we are not perfect, we are utterly condemned. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the first part of the gospel, and we pray that you would continue to do this with us, Lord, that that sin is worthy of condemnation and utter eternal condemnation, that we might hate sin as much as you, Lord, continue to work this in our hearts, but not so that we may be morbid, introspective people, but, Lord, that in our self-examinations, we might look to Christ and to his righteousness, confessing our sins and receiving pardon, not because of our repentance, but because of the power of Christ revealed on the cross. We thank you, Lord, you do not give us advice, but you give us Christ, the powerful Christ. We thank you, Lord, for these things, that you have had mercy even on these people, Philistines, and therefore you have had mercy upon us, the worst of sinners. Lord, we thank you that you break down the other religions and their false idols We pray, Lord, that you would indeed do this with us and break down our idols. For, Lord, we know that you are victorious. May we live in Christ's victory. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.